Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Bengalis in New York show. My name is Arik and uh, we were repping it for, you know, the Bronx, Manhattan, Brooklyn, Queens, Staten Island, and all over the world. So welcome and enjoy. Hi everyone, it's Cam and Fahim. Uh, hey guys, how you doing today? Uh, we have another episode of the Boney Podcast. We have a special guest. Are actually guests on the show. Um, we want to highlight young Bengalis that are doing um, really good work with uh, refugees and, and nonprofits. So we have uh, on Cohen. Cohen, you want to introduce yourself? Yeah. Hey, everyone. I'm Cohen. Cohen, and uh, so you're uh, you're uh, tell us about yourself. You're a student, uh, and tell us about some of the uh, the, the nonprofit that stuff that yeah. you're working on. Yeah, sure. Uh, so I'm a freshman in college right now. I'm not Williams College, but I actually got involved with my not-for-profit MIDI fund back when I was a freshman in high school, I think. Um, so I guess kind of the way I got involved with the MIDI fund was I genuinely was just looking for some volunteering service. I, you know, like at, for school, I had to do like X number of hours, and I was just looking around trying to see what I could do. And then one of my family friends, actually, uh, Ravana Rahman, she told me about this program that she was doing called MIDI Fund. Um, and basically the goal of MIDI Fund uh, then was to work with the young students and teach them like problem-solving skills so that they could identify problems in their communities and come up with really cool innovative solutions for it. And so the purpose of that was really just to make sure that students got access to leadership skills and professional skills from a young age so that they didn't have to wait until like college or even grad school to start gaining those skills. Right. Is it focused toward a, a certain demographic? So typically we do work with a lower income area, but our main focus is that we're working with young kids. Okay. And it's New York focused, the nonprofit? So we've been working in New York for four years, and this is the first year that we're able to start a new location it's actually around me at Adams, Massachusetts. Um, I was able to get a partnership with the local school around here, and we've brought it to Massachusetts now. Okay. Yeah, so just to back up, though, where did you, where did you grow up? Where were you born? Where did you yeah. grow up? What school did you go to? I was born in Elmhurst Hospital. Grew up on 74th Street in Elmhurst. I went to school at PS12 for a year, and then uh, went to PS153, and I then went to the Baccalaureate School for Global Education in Astoria. That's where I graduated from for high school. Thanks. So I became uh, aware of you because uh, you were on yeah. uh, Humans of New York recently. <laughs> how did that? How did that happen? Uh, that was pure luck, man. Um, generally, I was just sitting doing some reading for class, and Brandon—that's uh, his name. That's the guy who walked around this camera. He just came. He up. still does that. He still does it himself. Yeah, yeah. It's, I'm pretty sure it's all him. Wow. I don't think he has like a team of other photographers wow. or interviewers. Okay, I so, feel I feel I feel like a loser uh, and a high maintenance loser right now because I don't <laughs> take I don't take all the pictures for Bangladesh uh, New York. So wow, <laughs> wow, yeah. yeah, no, really, is he's he's a genius. I mean, he randomly came up to me. He asked like he showed me his phone with uh, the Humans of New York page, and he was like, "Hey, like I run a blog. Do you have a few minutes to be interviewed?" I recognized the blog and I was like, yes, like, of course. Of course I'm going to make time for this. <laughs> and then we just talked for like 25, 30 minutes. He 
started off very general and then, you know, started like picking out specific points and was really able to get my story out. So he did that on a Sunday and then he posted it on a Monday. So it was a very quick turnaround too. Wow, that's amazing. And then uh, and then I reached, I think someone reached out to you and you were like, you listened to a podcast and I was like, wow, you want to come be on it? <laughs> uh, yeah. So uh, that's, uh, that's super cool. So um, uh, going back to the um, the nonprofit, so it's interesting. So you, you had to do hours for like the college admission, is that what it was? Yeah, so to graduate okay. high school um, okay. for the International Baccalaureate Diploma, which okay. is what uh, my school offered, I yeah. had to do uh, community service. So it's interesting because, you know, it's interesting how sometimes, um, not selfish, but something, sometimes, uh, something that you have to do kind of turns into a, your passion, mm-hmm. right? For me, oh, yeah. uh, I had to do volunteer work for high school also for college applications and I ended up, you know, volunteering at a hospital, but which is good because yeah. I realized from that that I did not want to go into that field. So it actually worked out the opposite way because I did not oh, go into wow. medicine by work because, uh, I did not, I just didn't like blood and I didn't like some of the other stuff I saw. I just, I knew, I just knew it wasn't for me. So I got that yeah, yeah. for my volunteer work. But it sounds like you found um, some of your passion. So, yeah. uh, I mean, you're really young. You're a freshman in college and you're doing a lot of amazing stuff. How are you, like, finding time and what motivates you to do this stuff? Um, you know, like, the cliche answer that people give, but it's the one that I'm going to give is, like, family. Just the way that I grew up uh, in a Bengali household, with parents who were always motivating me to not only, you know, do well academically, but also give back to the community around me. I think it motivated me, not specifically for Midicon, but on a, in a more general sense to do what I can with what I have, no matter what that is. Awesome. Um, what's, your, what's your major uh, going to be? Something of economics right now, actually. But okay, I thanks. have to declare at the end of sophomore year, so I'm still... Uh, Trying to explore my options. Yeah, you have plenty of time. I did econ. Tell us a little bit more about Medifund. How are you funded? Um, how yeah. many students uh, are you supporting right now? How many people yeah, yeah. Five high school mentors. And so the way Medifund works actually is we have a group of mentors who uh, who we teach design thinking to. And so design thinking is uh, the way of problem solving that focuses on empathy and it allows people to. Uh, really identify like what problems that they're working with so that they can have a better, better understanding of it and come up with a better solution for that problem. And so we train our mentors in design thinking, how to work with kids and a few other professional skills. And then we go, when we uh, actually go into the specific school that we're working at, uh, the mentors go through the MIDI fund curriculum that we have. Um, and going through that curriculum, you know, they help the students identify a problem, do research about that problem, come up with a fun, innovative solution for that problem, uh, create a presentation for it, and end up presenting it. It's amazing. And who designed the curriculum? Did you have a hand in designing that? Yeah, you know, so, like, there was an original curriculum five years ago, but that curriculum uh, has been revamped a lot. Uh, so I have a specific person in charge of curriculum design, and so she did a lot of that work, and my job was just to verify. <laughs> wow, well, you have so wow, so you're managing people also. Yeah, you know, so the two original people who did found uh, who did found this organization, who started this organization, they were NYU Stern kids, um, but unfortunately, uh, 
they had to leave very early on. Uh, okay. So by April of my freshman year, I got promoted to executive director alongside Ravana Rahman. And uh, so both of us have been co-executive directors for the past five years now. How are you guys uh, funded? So, you know, there's actually not too much money that we need um, in, the, in the sense where since we are working with kids directly and our goal isn't to come up with an amazing solution, you know? Our goal is to provide this process of problem solving to these students and to allow them like a platform where they can go and present their ideas, the ideas that they're passionate about, um, the ideas that they created, you know? I like to think about it this way. If I had the opportunity when I would say 11 years old to design a solution for a problem in my community some, like, and design it with a team of my friends and then go on to present that idea at Harvard University in front of like professors, grad students, my confidence would be insane, I think. Um, I think that would just motivate me so much to keep doing things like that. And, you know, that's like, that's the goal for MidiFund. It's to allow students to feel that way, to feel like they can be leaders because they can. That's inspirational. I love that. Yeah, I wish I had something like that when I was, uh, that young also. And I love that your focus area, like you said, um, that you are, you're focusing on, on certain demographics. Uh, uh, mm-hmm. like, uh, what, what, where does the name MidiFund come from? <laughs> That is a very good question. Um, so MIDI comes from middle school students who oh. primarily focus on. And okay, okay. fund and fund came from the fact that um, early on, we at the end of the pitch competitions, we used to actually give some money to the students to continue with that. Um, okay. But we know the name is uh, very misleading, and we are in the works of uh, trying to get that fixed. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, you know, just the exposure for these kids. I was, yeah. I grew up, I guess, uh, I grew up in the quote unquote inner city. In my high school, there was a mentorship program with a company called Boston Consulting Group. Um, so yeah. BCG is one of the biggest companies in the world, which I found out later. But what it was <laughs> cool was every, uh, every week I would go to the offices of BCG and meet with this mentor. And it was just amazing exposure for me, uh, because I had not seen anything like that. It was just an amazing corporate, uh, corporate uh, environment, uh, people were just oh, like, for sure. super, super smart. I got exposed to so many things that I would never have gotten exposed to. Um, so, yeah, I think just the exposure and yeah. the people that are around these kids, that will be uh, incredibly helpful for these kids. Yeah. You know, like, I'm, I think such an important thing is just, like, trying out your options. Um, being exposed to different things, it's so, it's so much help. Um, like the thing you were talking about before, how you did an internship, at a hospital and you ended up you didn't like it like as much as we try to find internships and opportunities and things that we do like it's also so important to figure out what we don't like yeah absolutely absolutely so uh Gwen, i uh really appreciate yeah. uh your time today uh, i think you're doing amazing stuff i'm sure we'll hear more from you um in the future um any other projects you have coming on let us know about i'm happy to talk about it on the podcast also let people know how they can find out more about MidiFund, and obviously we'll post it on our Instagram also. Yeah, of course. Uh, so MidiFund Instagram is at MidiFund, and we also have a website, www.midifund.org. Uh, great, great. All right, so I uh, appreciate everyone's uh, time. Yeah.
Right. Thank you, you so much for having me, guys. Wow, so that was a great conversation with Cohen. Sounds like he's doing amazing things. Uh, I don't know about yeah. you, Cohen, but that made me feel really bad about myself. Yeah, honestly, it's just, it's crazy how Bengali students are really going out there and doing so much for the community and just trying to get back at such a young age. And yeah, and, and really, like, yeah, and not only that, even younger kids, are, you know, kids that are like in middle school now, they'll see uh, Bengali kids doing amazing things and starting nonprofits or, and while doing amazing volunteering work overseas, make, it'll make them want to do other things. So, like, yeah. I always felt like my, my options were, you know, finance or accounting. You know, maybe if I wanted to go into med, those are things that would be, um, you know, would be, uh, that would that would make my parents happy. But I really didn't see any of the op- other options, like working in nonprofits, you know, yeah. doing major volunteer work. I mean, I'm glad, um, I'm glad, uh, I'm glad uh, the new generation is doing that. But again, it makes me feel really bad about myself. <laughs> but at least the spectrum has just reinvented itself with so many other options now. And that's the yeah. whole point of us. We're trying to get the word out there. And we actually have a yeah. second guest today, Cam. Yep, so we, ha- we have a um, uh, special guest. Her name is Noreen. Uh, she's doing amazing work with uh, refugees. Um, so, Noreen, you want to introduce yourself and talk about some of the great work that you're doing? Hi, uh, I'm Noreen. Um, so, uh, as uh, I was doing research for, as part of my master's thesis, I was I went to Cox's Bazaar, uh, the Kutupang uh, refugee camp. And uh, my research was about how limitations of resources and prohibition of employment um, enhance exploitation of refugees within the camps and what aid agencies are doing to prevent the exploitation. And, um, yeah, I, I was there for a week almost, and it was a great eye-opening experience, especially learning about the struggles that refugees face within the camps. Because we hear a lot about, uh, like, uh, what they faced before coming to Bangladesh, like the genocide and everything, but none of us really tend to hear what's going on within the camps, like the struggles that they face and um, how they're going day to day. So, Noreen, and just to uh, let people know, uh, Noreen is specifically talking about the Rohingya camps in, in Bangladesh, right? Yeah. Okay, and it's it's in Chittagong, right? Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. It's in it's in Chittagong. It's in Cox's Bazaar. It's near uh, Technos. And, okay. Um, yeah. So, uh, how is that experience like? Uh, obviously, you know, you live in New York. Uh, you're from New York, and you're used to. Uh, you grew up in a you know first world environment. How is that like adjusting to that sort of uh, you know environment in a in a refugee camp? Um, it was, it was actually, well, I've actually been to a refugee camp before, so it wasn't, it wasn't too hard adjusting to it, but it was still, like, uh, very, very, like, eye-opening, and it was very, um, different from what I expected, so. And you were there for about a week, did you go through an organization, um, uh, or how did that work? Um, so when you, when you have to visit the refugee camp, um, Bangladeshi citizens actually can go without like any permits or anything. They can go in and out. But foreigners, so since I was a U.S. citizen, I had to go through the refugee commission in Bangladesh and we had to, we had to apply and like we have to send in our passports and I, I had to send in a school letter saying I'm doing research. And it was just, it was, it was a lengthy process, but 
It's mm. obviously for a good reason. For of course. They don't want anyone to come in and go. Wow. And you, so this is your, um, like your, this is your third, um, volunteer, um, vol- volunteering at refugee camps. You also were volunteered in Uganda? Yeah. Uh, I went to Tanzania and, and Uganda. Wow. Yeah. That's amazing. How do you, so how do you, how do the, the, the problems that the people face in these different camps compare? Um, I don't, I mean, not to say we want to compare them, but, how are they how are they different and how do they how do they same? So well in in Uganda specifically they're allowed to work outside the camps. They can they obviously like the Rohingya can go in and out of the camps, but there they're not legally allowed to work outside the camps. They can only work within the camps, which limits them a, a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're seeking a lot of riskier illegal work like um and that's how they face exploitation because of that but in mm. Uganda they they're free to work outside they're free to go to the city they're free to do whatever they want and they can come back in and mm. the other difference is the how how it's structured so Uganda it's it's a settlement not really a camp so it's basically like a town, and like a lot of the structures are permanent because they've been there since for a long, long time. And um, but in Bangladesh, they're not permanent. These are all tiny shelters, and I guess the government expects them to go back one day, even though they've been here for a long time as well. Mm. So, yeah. How do they maintain, um, I guess, stability? Like, are, are there police officers, uh, Bengali police officers, in in the camps, in in, in the Rohingya camps? Um, when I went there, I didn't really. See, well, there, there was a lot of military checkpoints. So, but they're usually outside of the camp. So within the camps, there are UN security, and they always um, do rounds like throughout the camps. They, like, mm. drive in their UN vehicles, and they, like, go around just, like, making sure, like, everything mm. is okay. But okay. outside the camps, it's military checkpoints. Wow. Yeah, I know, um, I, reading your uh, post on, on, on Boney, when I first read it, it's uh, really sad, especially when you talked about child marriages and yeah. things like that. Uh, mm-hmm. Is that something you saw firsthand? Yeah, so apparently, like, uh, I talked to UN women and they were telling me the two most things that the Rohingya refugees face are, are domestic abuse and child marriages. Um, domestic abuse, rape, like, uh, arises because a lot of the men, they can't work. So they get very frustrated and they take that frustration out on their wives their children. Um, mm. Child marriages happen because the families feel like this is a better option for their girl. And um, also because the the community is actually very conservative. Like, even, even Bangladesh's standards or anything, they're, like, extremely conservative. So they feel like the earlier that their daughter gets married, the less, I guess, scandals will arise and also um it's a it's a great 
income, quote-unquote, source for them. And also for them, it's a less mouth to feed as well. I mean, you know, this obviously, the child marriages, even outside of these camps, yeah. right? In Bangladesh, mm-hmm. even the villages um, throughout Bangladesh. You know, but the thing, you know, it makes me think because... Uh, like you said, it's a, it's a, it's too, um, it's like stable income. Yes, so the yeah. son-in-law provides, so the son-in-law mm-hmm. provides funds for the family of the daughter. Mm-hmm. But in the villages, I guess there are, um, there are, there are people in different economic, I guess, classes. So, mm-hmm. so if mm-hmm. someone at a, someone that's at a lower income, so a family that's on a lower income level can marry up to a, uh, I guess a man that's in a higher income level in the hopes of that that person yep. providing for them. Mm-hmm. So in the in the in the refugee camps, um, the Rohingya refugee camps, is does that exist also? So do you have different levels of wealth in the refugee camps? Because if they're all refugees and mm-hmm. they left everything, um, mm-hmm. you know, in uh, in Indonesia uh, uh, or uh, mm-hmm. with, wherever they come from, yeah. how are they how are they more wealthy than others in the camps? Um, honestly, they're not really all wealthy. It just depends on, I guess, uh, yeah, a lot of them are very, very poor. Um, they also just depend on income from businesses that they make within the camps because they, they can set up businesses in the camps. That's only within the camps. But what a lot of the refugees want or, and have done is like, um, a Bangladeshi, like the, someone from the host community would sometimes come, um, they would come inside the camps and then meet a girl, meet a refugee girl, and then the family would see that as an opportunity for, wow, this is a Bangladeshi citizen, my child might get citizenship too, and if they have a family, then all their children would also get citizenship, when that's not true. And... The sad part is, like, they would get married, and then a few months later, the husband leaves. So, it's just a very, like, terrible situation, whether, like, they come or not, yeah. uh, That's really sad. Um, You know, I'll be honest, though, you know, I see it on the news, and I I watch it on TV. I'm not Mm -hmm. super versed in the history of the the Rohingya people. at a high level maybe, but, you know, if you had to kind of um, explain it to someone for the first time, you mm-hmm. know, why, uh, how they um, came to the position they are, um, yeah. how, how, what, would, what, would that, what would that sound like? Right. So uh, the Rohingyas actually claim they've been there for several thousand years, and the Buddhist population in Myanmar claims they are actually illegal immigrants from Bangladesh. Um, so they've been going through a lot. And then what really caused the their statelessness and persecution was the 1982 citizenship law in Myanmar, which um, there were over 130 ethnic groups. And um, so that citizenship law actually... Um, remove them as a protected ethnic group. So they're not, basically they're not citizens anymore. And they're just regarded as stateless. So from 1982, that's when a lot of persecution happened. 
And because they were denied citizenship, they had lost a lot of access to everything. Education, healthcare, um, even even just simply marrying someone or just like even moving from one village to another village. They were limited in a lot because of that 1982 citizenship law. And that's when you started seeing a lot of like influx from from Myanmar to Bangladesh, especially in uh, Pakistan Bazaar. So they all just like came flooding from mm. 1980. Yeah. But uh, they also started coming in the uh, early, late 1970s as well. But that's when you started seeing like some tension, but it, it, it was really enhanced in 1982. Yeah, and I said Indonesia earlier, I apologize. Malaysia, I meant to say Malaysia. But uh, so, what are uh, the locals, uh, the local Bangladeshi Chagong uh, uh, residents? Uh, I'm assuming, like you said, there's tension. Obviously, you know, mm-hmm, Bangladesh yeah. already has a lack of resources to mm-hmm. support to support its own people. Um, yeah. So then taking on, you know, millions of other people is difficult, right? You know, so I, if it were always, you know, I'm always thinking, you know, it's, uh, yeah, the government, I mean, any, any government would like to help. Um, yeah. But it's like, who do you, you know, who do you help first? You know, mm-hmm. you, the, the citizens of Bangladesh or, or these people. And and it's difficult to turn away these people, right? They're coming yeah. in at your step, you know, similar, I mean, similar to what's happening in, uh, you know, here um, Mm-hmm. With the uh, refugees coming in from Latin America, but obviously to a greater scale in um in uh with the Rohingyas. Um mm-hmm. I mean what's there's no right answer it seems. I don't I don't yeah. even know. Like I mean yeah. I'm not an expert. I mean I know there's a lot of organizations trying to help, but what's what's the yeah. solution? Like what's what's like the end game? What's like the perfect solution like that you you think? I, I feel like I feel like awareness is a lot has to do I mean I I because the same sentiment about the Rohingya refugees, how the whole thing feels, I felt like it was very similar to how a lot of Americans feel about the refugees coming from from Latin America. Um, they feel like uh, we're we're poor. Why are they getting a lot of resources? Um, also, that's why the the government, the, not the government, a lot of international aid agencies, when they give them food or shelter or anything, they have to make sure it's not at a higher level than what the host community, like, would normally get. So they have to make sure it's, like, at least one level below them so that wow. they won't get angered. Yeah. That's and, really interesting. Um, yeah. So they, they take that into mind. Um, a lot of, yeah, a lot of sentiments are pretty much the same because a lot of the host communities, the Bangladeshi people, they think that Rohingyas are actually violent and, like, they cause a lot of crime, they bring in drugs, and it's, it's basically the same sentiment here. So so they feel like, like uh, they, don't, they don't really like being near them, but they have to work with them because they did flee from genocide and persecution. So, but a lot of the same sentiments are there. But I, what I've seen is that um, a lot of the aid agencies, they try to work with both the host communities and the Rohingya refugees together to, like, raise awareness, to bring them together. Like, they even have, like, programs set up for them to work with each other. And um, I feel like that does help a lot because... 
they're starting to see, like, oh, these people aren't as bad as we think they are. So, uh, yeah, those 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 communities and um, working together did help, and awareness is definitely. Yeah, I've heard the violent. I have the vi- I've heard the violent um, comment being made from some family members. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's unfortunate. Right? It could be one person out of the million that maybe you know steals because he's hungry, and it'll just give the entire population a bad name. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess. I guess you know the the difference. The, you know, there's like a lot, of, a lot of parallels to what's going on here. The difference yeah. is that you know, United States is already not a hugely populated mm-hmm. country. I mean, we have if you drive around upstate or drive around most of this country there's a yep. ton of space i mean we're not a heavily populated country whereas Bangladesh, it's one of the most um densely populated countries yep. especially dhaka is one of the most densely populated cities mm-hmm. maybe not as much so that's you know that's the difference because um you know there's no room and it's like, like i said earlier it's a lack of resources um i mean it's, it's not an easy solution i mean yeah. i feel i feel bad for the government, it's not it's it's not easy. I mean, I don't you know. I, like I said, I'm sure everybody wants to help. It's just uh, mm-hmm, it's just difficult. Mm-hmm. What language do they um, speak? Um, and how the how is the culture similar or different mm-hmm. from um, their culture? Similar or different from like traditional Bengalis? Um. So actually, so the language they speak is they speak Burmese, but when they but it it's very similar to what people speak in Chittagong. It's okay. very similar. Okay. Um, but yeah, they do speak Burmese, and um, the camps actually teach them Burmese, um, even English, mm. and uh, and and Bangla too. But they okay. they but they learn Chittagong uh, Bangla. Okay. Uh, side note: uh, People are wondering why Fahim is so quiet. Mm-hmm. Fahim's still here. Um, yeah, he MC. He MC. He MC an event last night, and his voice is gone. Got a little carried um, away. It was too late. Yeah. <laughs> and, but I'm um, here. But he's still here. Uh, but uh, um, but yeah. Anyway, but uh, no, this is great. Um, if people want to help, um, the end of the so many organizations, right? What's yeah. in your opinion? What's a reputable organization people can? Um, you know, go through to to provide uh, assistance to uh, the people in uh, Rohingya. So one of the main organizations that I've actually like seen them firsthand, and I really really liked, was actually a local organization. They're called Mukti Cox's Bazaar, and they're located um, just outside of the camps, and uh, they work with a lot of like UN agencies. And they started, um, I think, 1990. They started as uh, with a host community, helping the host community. And then they also, uh, so when the Rohingya refugees, you know, an influx came, that's when they started working with them. Um, another one is an organization that I personally actually work with. It's in NYU, and they're called Rise for Rohingya. Oh, um, great, yeah. We follow yeah. them. Yeah, that's, so that's yeah, I, I I work I I'm part of them. Yeah. Yeah, that's so, great. Yeah. I think there's great organization. Yeah, I know, and I feel like yeah. So that's also another organization that that also helps with the Rohingya crisis, and we do fundraising and everything. So, but definitely Amazing. like those two are are um, 
And also, obviously, UNHCR, um, they do help. But the uh, the one, the organization that's in charge of the camp is IOM, uh, International Organization of Migration. They're the ones in charge of everything within the camps, how, how the camps are maintained, um, where you can put a shelter, just, just basically everything. Okay, great. Thanks for that. What's, so what's next for you? What's uh, next for you? Um, um, well, try to finish doing research on this and uh, hopefully get a job one day doing refugee work. That's the dream. It's amazing. Continue Fantastic. what I wanted to do with this. I love that. Um, so, uh, and then, uh, just to let everybody know if you want to uh, follow uh, Noreen, her IG handle is... Uh, Captain underscore N C H A A. Um, she's also been featured on the Boney page. Um, she was featured a few weeks ago. You'll see a picture of her. I think is, is that she that down in the background? Yes. Yes. I was in. Uh, was it? Uh, yeah. That that's what a lot of. Um, okay. Okay. So yeah, you could follow her from there. But I really appreciate your time, um, mm-hmm. Noreen. Um, yeah, if you have anything so else much. going on. If you have anything else going on that you want us mm-hmm. to talk about, let us know, obviously. Um, yeah. And uh, also, you guys uh, will see more of Noreen and on the Instagram page. won't mm-hmm. give anything away, but uh, we're working on something. And so you'll see her more uh, in the coming weeks on our page. Yep. Oh, thank you. But, uh, yeah, really appreciate your time, Noreen. Um, thank you. Thank you for having yeah. me. I thank really you. appreciate it. No problem. All right. Talk to you, uh, everybody, next week. Take care, everyone. Stay tuned for our next episode of the Boney Podcast. And next week, we got a very special surprise for all of you. Boney's coming to video. That's right. From now on, you're not only going to be able to listen, but you're also going to be seeing us. That's right, bye. Stay tuned for Boney YouTube. <laughs> Pabena, pabena, shuk, pukta kolana, kolana